Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, from time to time, we're digging around for topics. We had a change in our, our production schedule this week, and we're looking for an interesting show to conduct. And I have to say, we came across a great one from our good friend, Brad Warren. That's right, Peter. We get to turn our attention to one of your favorite topics, sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. And I know that you have a personal story about Sargasm because when we did our Field Notes show from Playa de Carmen, right. you talked about how that particular uh, Cancun area resort was dealing with the aftermath of a big Sargasm inundation yeah. event. It was extraordinary and it had a big impact on the, the, on the trip that we took and whether we could go diving and snorkeling in the near shore waters which was actually not possible given the sargasm inundation of the and we say we're saying sargasm but we yeah. could also say sargassum ladies yes. and gentlemen we're, we're gonna probably go back and forth on that but we're talking about this macro algae yeah. and uh if you haven't heard of this if you're up i don't know in some part of the american shoreline and you don't hear about sargassum frequently yeah. Uh, this will be an interesting show for you. This is a show about climate change, adaptivity, uh, turning the corner, thinking creatively about problems. Uh, so I think that there's a lot to be learned from uh, this discussion today, Peter. And we've got two great guests. We do. Uh, we're joined today by Brad Warren, who is the president of the National, National Fisheries Conservation Center. Uh, and many of our listeners will know Brad Warren is also the host of the Changing Waters podcast, one of the great shows on the American Trolling Podcast Network. And uh, joining also is Allison Myers, who is the president of an organization called the Fearless Fund, fearlessfund.org. Uh, and she has been looking hard at the problem of the explosion of sargasm, a, mac a floating macroalgae, and the not only the problem, but the opportunities that can create. So. This is actually an, an essential show to understand on the American shoreline because sargasm is something people are not generally thoughtful about or aware of, but is having incredible implications for the tourism industry financially, but biologically it's significant too. So I'm just looking forward to talking to Brad and Allison about this topic. Me too, Peter. It's going to be a great show, but first let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Brad, uh, we want to thank you, first of all, for introducing us to Allison Myers and the fearlessfund.org. Uh, Brad, when you uh, contacted us about this show, can you give us a setup in, in terms of why this, in, why this issue uh, is important to you at the National Fisheries Conservation Center and the implications of the discussion we're about to have? Sure. Yeah, we've been interested uh, for a, a long time in what it takes to keep the ocean healthy so it can still make dinner for billions of people. And uh, one of the strategies for that that we've explored and helped to develop has been uh, using uh, marine macroalgae and sometimes microalgae as a mechanism of carbon capture. And uh, then what you do with it gets tricky. You can make biofuels out of it. You can make materials. You can, there's a lot of things you can do. The, the, you can also bury it in the deep ocean. Of those options, uh, one of the most creative approaches we've seen uh, comes from Allison Myers and her, her organization, Fearless Fund, uh, which is doing, we think, really good work to explore the potential, uh, both in fuel and in carbon removal for sargassum. And they're also doing something that for us is very important. 
uh, unlike some folks who show up on the ocean and say, oh, it's empty, let's just take it over. Uh, Allison already works on the water. Uh, she's a, she's a, a, a shellfish grower. So she knows that the ocean is occupied, regulated, and there are neighbors and you have to work with them to get anything done. And it's, it's key to successful marine resource management and conservation to be able to work with the people. She totally gets that. We really appreciate what she's up to both technically and um, strategically. So here we are. Well, thanks for that, Brad. And Allison, welcome to the show. It's uh, awesome to have you here and to learn a little bit more about the Fearless Fund uh, organization and uh, your style of of thinking about the ocean and uh, problem solving uh, the issues that we have. But let's start by learning a little bit about you. Brad mentioned that you come from a, a history uh, of shellfish growing. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in sarcasm? Sure. Um, thanks very much for having me on the show. Thanks, Brad. Um, so I found myself uh, spending a lot of time on the coast of Virginia, and I became interested in the systems, the coastal systems. And just for fun, really, I put in some um, baby oysters and happened to put them in a shallow bay. And that bay was choked with seaweed. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've never seen anything like this before. Um, what's causing it and what can we do about it? And as it turns out, it, the bay was receiving runoff from um, the farms adjacent to where I was. And almost immediately the thought was, let's harvest this seaweed, macroalgae, and turn it into products as a way of um, monetizing the biomass to fund the removal of the pollution. So that was the start of the work, um, maybe about uh, eight years ago. And then from there, the thinking was, well, gosh, if we're gonna harvest macroalgae and it will help uh, the health of this system, where else are there degraded systems? And can we potentially set up farming of macroalgae to reduce nutrient pollution. So specifically, there are hundreds of dead zones around the world. Could we potentially help those? So that's where the work started. Um, I went back to school for a couple of years to get a master's um, to learn more, um, to prepare to do the work. And then the Department of Energy came out with a request for those interested in macroalgae um, could we farm it at energy scale or carbon dioxide removal scale? So that was that was the beginning. So uh, here's my uh, interface here with, well, I, I, of course, we nerd out on this show. And we like to talk Great. about uh, the broad spectrum of, uh, of, of climate change and carbon sequestration and carbon capture and energy transition. Peter, we talk about all this stuff. LNG, LNG facilities and fuel transition, hydrogen. I mean, we love this stuff. But I'll tell you, I've watched a fair number of uh, oil company advertisements of late. And they're very green branded. And there's always bubbling green liquid. <laughs> and that's algae. They're it's very true. They're I've planting, seen it. They're planting the seeds. So, Allison, help me understand. I know, I know from these advertisements that you can make energy with algae. But can you explain to me how, how that works scientifically? Sure. Um, so uh, DOE uh, requested that we produce the macroalgae at large scale because it's never been done. It's, it's considered a bottleneck um, to, um, you know, making a solution of, you know, renewable fuel. Um, how we do that, we don't focus on as much, but here's what I know. You can put the biomass through an anaerobic digester, so without oxygen, and convert it to a biogas. So instead of removing fossil fuels from the deep sea or, you know, from land, we could produce natural gas in a 
carbon neutral way. So just like any photosynthetic plant, algae also takes up CO2 to make its biomass, you know, add water, add nutrients, and you and the biomass grows. So you take those those hydrocarbons and sargassum is 31% carbon and you find ways to make fuel out of that. Anaerobic digestion is one, but there are other ways, fermentation, and there are probably other ways that I'm not familiar with, but we hope to get there. Very interesting. And for the benefit of the listeners out there, we're using a couple of terms. We're talking about a feedstock here for a potential potential energy production process using sargasm, a macroalgae. Um, Allison, would you explain to our audience what is a macroalgae, what is sargasm, and where do we find it? Um, so sargassum is, um, is a kind of seaweed, and the technical name is macroalgae. Um, it's fascinating for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, the reason why we chose it as our species of choice is that it floats. And we were trying to figure out how to scale for DOE, RPE. And the best way to do that is the most natural way with the system. So find a native species. And in this case, uh, sargassum is unique because it floats. So um, it makes wide floating mats or long lines of seaweed floating at the juncture of currents. It's the interaction of biology and physics. It's habitat. It also provides some cooling because it shades the water beneath. It's really an amazing thing of nature. And in a time of excess CO2 in our atmosphere that's impacting our climate and so much more, it absorbs CO2 and converts it to a harvestable form. That's why we become interested. So for those of us who seek to remove CO2 to help balance our atmosphere, it offers us a biological tool to do so. In other words, it's a climate superhero if we can just nail down a few of the details. Fascinating. Uh, thanks, Allison. Brad Warren, I, I need to get your take on this because uh, sarcasm is an interesting topic. I mean, this is a naturally occurring, as Allison say, says, it's a naturally occurring thing. But with climate change, with the additional carbon in the atmosphere and the warmer temperatures, and I guess increased nutrients as well, which we should talk about, there's more of this stuff. What is your attitude about how, I mean, is this... Is sarcasm uh, needing management for the health of fisheries and the broader ecosystem? Does it pose an ecosystem risk here if it gets out of hand? To answer that question right off, yeah. Um, it, it, it's both a habitat in its uh, prior natural condition and in its current condition of uh, kind of uh, an out of balance uh, surge of production. It is producing uh, inundation events that swamp coastal bays and beaches uh, and reefs and uh, suffocate that habitat. It releases hydrogen sulfide. Uh, it releases methane. Uh, it, as it decays and de decomposes, it acidifies local waters. Uh, one of the major thrusts of our work has been around just these basic physical parameters of ocean health, like acidification, loss of oxygen. How do we keep the ocean so that it's physically capable of making dinner uh, and all the other things we enjoy from it? Uh, and we're at the point now where in places, uh, these sargassum overgrowths do clearly threaten um, local ecosystems that produce a lot of fish and a lot of other benefits, including tourism. And um, they are uh, in, 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 we with Allison have uh, begun a, a, a collaboration with an aquarium in St. Thomas uh, in the Virgin Islands. And um, 
the aquarium curator said, you know, in, in the setting where we meet this stuff, when it washes up in our bay, it's not habitat anymore. It's a death trap. Things are dying in it. And that's, that's a very interesting problem. It, it is, I, I'm not going to say it's simple to get uh, a, a grip on it as, a, as an overgrowth. Um, I think one of the challenges we face is to identify when exactly does it and how what are the transition points? How it moves from habitat into uh, hab, into harmful algal bloom. Uh, and that transition does occur. And it's not well mapped. And it's going to need to be mapped and understood with clear thresholds in order to be able to really sustainably and precisely manage a harvest that can be sustained and not cause a lot of harm itself. Man, that's uh, that is fascinating, and really, I think a statement of where we are in terms of managing the planet broadly. But uh, Peter, I, I, we in in the lead up to this show, we were talking about the conditions, and and we did the show, and I'm blanking on the a guy from Florida, yeah, <clears throat> who heads up the task force, the green algae, the blue green algae task force appointed by the governor DeSantis of Florida. Yes, and he great show, great great guy, uh, super informative scientist. And what we learned is it, three conditions make this stuff grow. Yeah, and I'm just going to hand this off to you because you're you've been tracking this <laughs> on Coastal News today very closely, and. Go just take just well. Go I, I think for, you know to set set the conversation up and what Allison is working on at fearlessfund.org is you know algae is a plant first of all it can be a microalgae like a phytoplankton single cell animals floating in the water or it can be a macroalgae like kelp uh, familiar from your territory Tyler on the west coast of the United States or uh, uh, sargasm which is a floating algae. Uh, it, uh, the plants have gas uh, uh, bubbles uh, in, in, the, in the stems that keeps it floating up to the surface, and that's how it grows. But there are three things that you have to have to grow a plant, and every farmer and rancher knows this. You've got to have light, you have to have nutrients, and you have to have the right temperature range. But if you have a lot of light and the right water temperatures and nutrients, plants are going to explode. And what's interesting about sargasm, which occurs mostly in the Southeast Atlantic region, you mentioned the Bay, uh, Playa del Carmen, where I was on the Yucatan Peninsula, all through the Caribbean right now, uh, Aruba and, and, and Cuba and on the Texas and Louisiana coast, we're seeing these massive mats coming ashore and inundating the beaches two, three feet thick, hundreds of millions of tons, literally, being depositive of this algae on important beaches and in ecosystems around the Caribbean basin in the Southeast Atlantic. So it's really about if you have enough nutrients and you have enough light and you have the right temperature range, this stuff is gonna explode. And that's what's happening now since 2011, this extraordinary explosion of algae, sargasm floating in the sea. And uh, let me just add this one thing, because I want to hear uh, from Allison, but pe people may not think about sargasm very much, but they know if, if you're, you've heard of kudzu, uh, a, an invasive plant in the southeast that is overtaking a lot of uh, habitat, microalgae blooms, red tide, blue-green algae that are causing really significant ecosystem disruption. We're growing for some reason in an unhealthy way, an explosion of different algaes in water systems around the world. And sargasm is an explosion that is devastating the environment uh, because it blocks, it has detrimental impacts on on coral reefs in the Caribbean, it has detrimental impacts on on tourism. Um, and I think Allison's work at Fearless Fund, the concept is, as she was saying about her experience in Virginia, can we do something with this plant? Can we convert it into a source of energy or a source of usable, us, usable products and harvest it? 
because we've got to do something. We're blowing this stuff up for some reason, and we don't quite know what the imbalance is. That's a little bit of a long explanation, but Allison, what, what, what are you trying to do at Fearless Fund in the face of this onslaught of sarcasm? Yeah, thanks for the question. So um, it may be useful to your listeners to know how this uh, is being managed now. So you have this relatively new production system, but it's very large. The, the system's been um, in existence since 2011. Um, the system is, extends from West Africa to Brazil and the Caribbean, generally, um, you know, floating on, on currents. And given the nutrient influx to the system, and potentially dust from Africa, iron dust from Africa, you have this explosion of production, which is, in my mind, a biological tool for us to use. It's a gift. What happens now is that that macroalgae lands on the coasts of Caribbean islands and elsewhere, and it causes huge damage. So we've been given a gift and we mismanage it. So currently, if you go to South Florida, for instance, or even the coast of Mexico, you'll see bulldozers out there, you'll see barriers, it's a mess. And instead, I think we need to be thinking in terms of, oh, we have carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus landing at our doorsteps Let's set up a system to manage it and do something productive with that for climate, for the economy, to protect our coastal environment, which right now there's, there's damage, as, as Brad mentioned, to um, coral reefs and seagrasses. These are vital habitats. And we just need to think about it as a kind of gift that we can use and repurpose. And at the same time, we provide jobs for coastal workers, jobs for fishing fleets potentially. This can be a fantastic thing if we simply look at it differently. And you can't do that in an emergency situation when it's landing on your beach and sending tourists elsewhere. But it needs to be done thoughtfully and with care to the environment and more broadly, the environment um, globally. What kinds of things can we achieve through management of this gift that's brought to our doorsteps? So where are we in this process, Allison? I mean, are we ready? You know, the, I, I'm, I'm excited. Like I'm ready to get on a boat and go out there, I guess, net some of the <laughs> cool. stuff up. Harvest it up. Yeah, harvest it up, bring it on in. I mean, I, I've, there's, as you mentioned, there's a bunch of good minerals and stuff in there. I suppose, uh, I, I imagine you could make fertilizer products. I imagine that you can sequester carbon, make like biochar and, uh, maybe make some fuel out of that and sequester some of it. So these are all cool things, but how, how do we get to doing them? Where are we in the process of, of actually implement, implementing, implementing some of these, uh, ideas? So where you start normally is you look at your problem, you propose a solution, and then you analyze it. So we perform, so on our team are um, US national labs, marine engineers, universities. We have a fantastic time with very deep expertise of sargassum. So there are things that we need to um, know with certainty, which is, where is the biomass? So we can look at satellite imagery, analyze that and know where it is in what quantities. Then we need to understand how is it moving through the system? Because in the end, if you want to harvest something, you need to know how it's moving because there's going to be a time lag between the time when you say, we need to send a vessel out to sea and the point of interception of that biomass. Um, another thing that we think about really from the beginning of this project is if this is habitat, how do we harvest this 
and avoid harm to endangered or other species. It's super important. We spend a lot of time on it and we test different means of harvesting um, the, the macroalgae. So these are just some of the things. Um, the, the last point is that anytime that you mobilize a fleet or even a, in one vessel, you have to have your economics well understood. So if we're sending a ship out to sea, even if it's within, let's say five to 10 kilometers, you have fuel, you have labor, all of this needs to be well understood with a revenue stream at the other end so that you can do this successfully. And I would say it's the same for any uh, solution for climate change. We have to monetize it and we have to have good policy in place to encourage it. And then you, you go out and you get your hands dirty and you, you test your methods and you correct them. It's an iterative process and I, it is so much fun <laughs> to try to solve a problem. And uh, you know, our oceans uh, give us a gift in sargassum, but they also are 70% of our planet. And when you look at the alternative of land-based ag versus growing um, biomass in oceans, there's really a very good reason for us to go out to the ocean and figure this out. It hasn't been done before in terms of macroalgae at large scale, but we hope to do it. And sargassum, uh, we believe, will be the macroalga that assists us because it's already doing it now. Okay. I love the concept here. Brad, this is right down your alley here. Um, what we're talking about and, and, and what Allison is explaining is we don't know where it grows. We don't know where it's going to appear. It's sort of out in the ocean and it is in a region, but we don't know exactly. It's not like farming uh, corn on a hundred acres. We, you know, you plant it at the plants right there, you know where it is, you know how you're going to harvest it. The, the fundamental aspect of taking advantage, and I will say of this imbalance in the natural system, this artificially driven explosion of a floating algae that occurs in a region of the Southeast Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean Sea isn't a hell of a lot different than what fishermen have to do. You know, we don't know where tuna are going to be or uh, all of the commercial species of fish. We know what the regions are uh, over time. We've become familiar with them, but it's not definitive in space. It is not definitive in volume, but there is a whole industry to go out and capture this naturally occurring protein source. There is a, isn't this analogous, Brad, to what commercial fishing industry is doing now, which is to set up a way, and what Allison's talking about is let's go out and harvest this naturally growing floating algae, find where it is, capture it in nets, bring it to shore, and put it to commercial use. I mean, this seems to me... It's very, like fishing for a plant. It's fishing for a plant. I think we can it's get got, it done. I think it's got the same... <laughs> what do you think, Brad? I mean, this is... I mean, it's obviously visible from satellite. Come on, talk to me about this. Isn't this sure, fundamentally yeah. fishing for, as Tyler says, fishing for a plant? Well, it, 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 even to the point of being legally defined as a fishery. Uh, and interestingly, unlike other fisheries, this is fishing on a substance which in some parts of its, uh, some places where it occurs, has been recognized for a long time as habitat. And it's very important habitat. Sargassum is used by endangered sea turtles. Sargassum is the fundamental spawning habitat of mahi-mahi, uh, which is an important fishery all through, you know, large parts of the tropics um, and uh, really a popular fish. Um, great eating, uh, prolific, uh, fast-growing, a, a, a really good fish to be eating, actually. Um, and if it depends on this habitat, as do many others, um, then, you know, you want to make sure you don't damage the habitat. 
uh, and understanding that transition from habitat into harvestable resource. Where does it occur? How? What, what, at what point do you, does it move beyond harvestable resource and become dangerous nuisance that, that threatens ecosystems where it beaches? Uh, those transition points need to be understood in order for this to be properly harvested and managed sustainably. Right now, and for some time in the US, the basic rule of thumb of policy is leave it in the water. Uh, it is regulated as a fishery and the rule is basically uh, leave it in the water. Uh, the South Atlantic Fishery Management Council has an FMP, a fishery management plan for this for this resource. And it says there is for an estimated- Wait, are you saying that it is currently managed by the Southeast Atlantic Fisheries Management Council as a harvestable resource? I did not know that. It's managed as a fishery, but their policy, because it's recognized as habitat primarily, and it's it's an accurate understanding. Okay. Its historic role has been as habitat. Um, their their policy does not recognize this explosion of new growth that's occurred lately. It recognizes the historic role of of uh, sargassum as a substrate on which many other species depend. Right. Um, so it, the two are both true, and both need huh. to be recognized. And we need to build a management system that protects what needs to be protected and removes what needs to be removed before it turns into an all, you know, an all consuming nuisance. Got it. Um, and that's what hasn't happened. Uh, what I we see. have is a fishery management plan currently that says, if you were harvesting this, there could be a, a sustainable harvest of about a hundred thousand tons a year in the South Atlantic fishery management. Jurisdiction. Which is nothing. That's a nothing number. Right, but it's not. It 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 it, it, it would it would add up. I mean, at least or something would 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 be a significant fishery uh, anywhere in the world. Okay, uh, and um, that uh, it it says that's how much could be sustainably removed, but leave it in the water. Uh, the, the 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 rule is uh, you can only take five thousand tons, and it's it, it really the intent is to don't take it. Uh, and at the state level, at municipal levels, okay. this stuff is protected very carefully because of its historic ecological role okay. as a as a habitat. Let me uh, uh, let me let me let me not have. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I, I want to just say for the listeners out there, having and when I went to school in marine biology at A and M at Galveston, uh, sargasm mats would come to shore on occasion. And as good marine biology students that we were, we'd head down to the to the beachfront with our twenty five gallon or fifty gallon aquarium, and we'd uh, throw we'd set it down on the beach. We'd scoop up some uh, sargassum and seawater, and throw it into the aquarium, and shake the sargassum out. And in this floating algae was an in, a remarkable assemblage of creatures. These perfectly adapted nudibranchs, which uh, were colored perfectly to camouflage with the sargasm, this copper-colored floating leaves, the sargasm crabs, the shrimp, there were a variety of creatures. And it was extraordinary to, to sort of do this with little kids on the beach, and we would, be, we would be putting them into an aquarium, shaking these things out, and people would see the amount of life that depended on this floating sargasm. The question I have, Allison, I was not aware, first of all, that it was a managed fisheries resource, as it should be. But since 2011, Allison, the explosion in the growth of this stuff, where mats of sargasm will wash up, say, on Playa del Carmen on the shoreline uh, south of Cozumel at two or three or five feet thick, that is absolutely makes the beach unusable, makes the nearshore water clarity horrible, and it starts to degrade and decompose, and it's detrimental to the environment and detrimental to the tourism industry. Um, it seems like we need to do something with it. When it gets within five miles of the coast, let's scoop it up, put it in a boat, take it to shore. Here's the question. What the hell you do with this stuff? You've got tens of thousands of tons what economic value is there 
of this material, this macroalgae, if you're able to get your hands on on it and harvest it? What would you do with it? Um, let me back up for one second. I'll, I'll address that in a moment. But what is important to understand is that the, you know, the seaweed that you found on the beach those days, and we're showing the kids, there are organisms within it, and it's very important. But had you waited another hour or two, right. they all would have been dead. So how do yes. you protect the organisms, remove the sargassum while it's in good enough shape that there can be an economic strategy, and avoid bulldozers on the beach raking this stuff up? That's bad for the beach ecosystem. So there's got to be an ideal way to manage the harvest of this um, macroalgae. So, you know, you have a fisheries management plan and then you have bulldozers on the beach. Somehow or other, we need to get people talking and finding a better solution because there's a lot of money being spent picking this stuff on the beach and it's not a, it's not a good solution currently. So there's a lot of people looking um, for, for our purpose. We think that it's best to harvest this in the water when the biomass is in better shape, um, convert it to products which can range from energy, which is really a low value um, product, but it's important to have energy sources that are better for our atmosphere. So energy on the one hand, um, people have looked at um, fertilizers or more commonly biostimulants um, for plants, because as we try to uh, conduct agriculture in a healthier way, uh, what can we use naturally rather than industrial fertilizers um, that run off into our waterways? Um, but there are, other, there are other products as well. We focus on hard to decarbonize areas like um, marine transport fuels, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, um, areas that are very hard to decarbonize. Cars, we can turn them electric and um, power them through renewable. Anyway, all of that is on the energy side, but there are other products that we can make, biopolymers, we have a partner in that. Um, you know, it's a relatively new problem. And so I think that we continue to work hard on finding those solutions so we can put them all together in a new kind of management plan that's good for our, good for our planet. And I have to say, uh, Brad Warren, that the fisheries model seems to be like such a good match here. Because what we have is an abundance of a particular species, of a particular biomass. It's actually, it's, I think it would be fair to say for practicality purposes that when you're, when you, if you were to harvest sargassum, you're going to be harvesting all the little shrimp and stuff too. Because sure. I, I, I just can't imagine that you'd be picking those little guys off. And I don't know, I don't know what you'd, maybe you could eat them. But uh, <clears throat> in any event, you're you're taking a surplus amount of something and you're saying well we need a at some level we need a base amount of this in the system naturally to be the habitat to naturally wash up on shores but what we need to avoid are these major mats where we have to bring in the tractors and it kills everything and decimates the tourism economy and and the other thing that i think is important here is that we now have new technologies uh, historically, the historic role of sarcasm, while we did understand it to some degree, we couldn't understand it as much because it's a big planet and we couldn't track it. But now we really can. We can understand our overgrowth. So, Brad, my question for you is how how do we change? How do we modify our fisheries model to uh, understand the historic role and the historic understanding of the importance of the habitat? and take advantage of the opportunities that Allison is talking about with regard to energy and, and new products, et cetera? Yeah, well, I think what we have is a, a need to develop a research agenda 
and a federal level investment in leadership internationally to define solutions for what's now both a problem and an opportunity. Not a stable state ecosystem that you just want to protect, it's that too. It's also now an overgrowth that's doing harm to coastal ecosystems and uh, presenting a lot of uh, new challenges and with them potentially opportunities. Can we uh, sort out what is sustainable use? What is the maximum sustainable harvest for a resource that wasn't there before? How do you how do you do it in a way that protects those beaches and bays and reefs? How do you do this in a way that protects the species that are found in those uh, sargassum mats uh, that are frankly some of them are endangered, and we're going to have to work out how to make sure we we protect them and don't just you know kill them inadvertently and harvest. Um, some of them are commercially important on their own on their own, like mahi mahi. We're going to need to figure out. How do we uh, support the mahi-mahi resource at the same time that we uh, manage this overgrowth? Uh, it, this, this is a research agenda. Uh, and you know, part of what we're interested in is developing a way to do it that it gets the US position to be part of defining the solutions instead of having uh, locked itself into the sidelines with a leave it in the water policy that is due for an update. Hmm. What do you think, Allison? How could what if you were speculating here on the management protocols that would govern the harvest of this material uh, to yield the benefits you're talking about, to produce energy, uh, to sequester carbon and convert it into fertilizers and other uh, products that are useful and valuable? Uh any thoughts on what the harvest protocol would be based upon? How would we try to tackle that? It's a great question. And we, um, we spend a, a good amount of time in the water um, harvesting in different ways. So, for instance, one of our experiments actually pulled a material through a mat very slowly, but just that um, drag against the organisms separated them from the mat. Okay. So there's all sorts of technical solutions. Are you talking about was, a net? I'm sorry. You're talking about dragging a net along the surface and collecting yeah, the was, floating algae or what could describe it in yeah, more, it, it was not detail. actually a net. So we try to do things, um, without a lot of um, kind of over-construction, expensive construction. So we use pretty okay. basic materials, right. but we try to understand how a material can interact with a sargassum mat in order to reduce bycatch, right? No one wants to take organisms out of the water. Right. And in fact, you could make an argument, um, and I probably am making the argument that depending on the distance out at sea, right. you should leave some percentage of biomass in the water for these organisms. The point is that when conditions change in a system and a problem arises, you need to click in with your innovation brain and say, how do we solve this problem so that we're actually providing a solution to multiple um, issues. And that's where the work gets exciting. Sometimes it is very technical, but we know our goals, which is avoid bycatch, um, avoid harm to the coastal systems. As you start to um, define what you want to do and what you want to avoid, the solutions start to become apparent. Huh. And, you know, as Brad says, we, we really... The U.S. is avoiding um, or not taking advantage of a situation uh, that we could in order to be a problem solver. And we happen to have been very fortunate to um, be working with the U.S. government on a, an adjacent challenge that then led us to the sargassum issue. 
And so we, you know, we, our team uh, is trying to find the best way to manage it in order to make all the stakeholders happy, but most importantly, keep our ecosystems healthy and productive. We must have productive systems. Uh, great work by Fearless Fund at fearlessfund.org. If you're listening to the show, take a look. Um, it, it's really fascinating here. The, the, uh, I was just looking at some of the information from NOAA on the amount of this material. Millions of tons uh, grow in a particular month during the year. These things are assessed by satellites or looking at these mats. There's a lot of it. It's my opinion that the explosive growth of sargasm since 2011 that we're seeing across the Southeast Atlantic into the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico is indicative of a fundamental imbalance in what we're doing as human beings in the system, in the degradation, heart, uh, the cutting, clear cutting of the Amazon forest releasing millions of tons of nutrients into the into the Amazon River, which are dumping into the Caribbean Sea. I mean, something is wrong here. All of the sudden, there's lots of sargasm. And I think what's great here with Fearless Fund is that you're saying, okay, there is an opportunity here. There's an opportunity financially, but there's an opportunity ecologically and from a carbon sequestration, carbon capture standpoint, there is an opportunity, whatever the cause. Um, what struck me about our conversation so far, when you're talking about had you waited a few hours on the beach and picked up the sargasm a few hours later and put it in the aquarium, there wouldn't be anything to shake out and be alive. And you're 100% correct. That is exactly what happens it desiccates very quickly it dries out it it it, it, it swamps the beach um, so I'm having a hard time not thinking that the harvest protocol is geographically based what we don't want are millions of tons of sargasm watching washing up on Playa del Carmen and beaches around the Caribbean where it's destructive to the nearshore coastal environment, it's destructive to coral reefs, and it's destructive to tourism. Um, if you created a harvest zone within five miles of the coast and said, anytime it starts getting in here, get your boats out there with whatever uh, raking system, net system, boat system, whatever it is, uh, and get this stuff out of the water, I think you'd, you'd, people would cheer. Uh, who are in the tourism industry. And I'll just note for the record that right now, uh, the Mexican government is employing the Mexican Navy uh, to try to capture this stuff before it lands on the beaches. There are extensive nearshore net systems that have been deployed at great expense by hotel operators along the shoreline to keep this stuff off the beach unsuccessfully, I think, in general. Um, so getting this stuff out of the water when it's an immediate threat to the nearshore seems plausible. Is, is that how this can be done, or does that not uh, give you the economic opportunities that you think would be necessary for this to go forward? I think you have it exactly right. You know, the, the further off the coast that you send your um, boats, you spend more in fuel, you spend more uh, time, you yeah. know, with your workers, it's just more expensive. And believe me, we've looked at it, we've analyzed it, and we were prepared to go far offshore. And the analysis showed us that we have to come closer in. So I think that instead of seeing um, different points of view as opposed i think there's actually a convergence yeah. yeah that where everyone can get behind a solution um you know in terms of cost in 2018 uh the number has been put out there that 118 million dollars was spent on trying to clean up uh the you know, basically the inundation on the beach. Yeah. That's a lot of money. And I think it's understated. 
I do too. It, it probably does not take into account lost revenue from tourists going elsewhere or not going to their Caribbean vacations, for instance. Right. So there's a lot of cost, both economically and environmentally. And instead, we can look at this as, oh, if we get all parties together, the hotels are going to be most pleased if they don't have to be in charge of cleaning up an ecological disaster. It's not their business. So let's try to figure out regional approaches, get it off the coast, you know, at whatever distance. We don't have that exact, you know, number of kilometers or miles, but just as a general principle, it sounds correct. So I think, I think you've stated it exactly right. And in the end, we want, we want turtles to be able to hatch and get out to sea. We don't want them to encounter sargassum mats and be pushed back into shore and potentially um, have mortality there. So I think there's a, a win for um, climate and for hotels and businesses and for workers to actually all work together and find some really good solution um, to this biological tool that's been uh, produced and given to us and says, you know, just find your best way and solve it. It's a, it's a slam dunk. It's a slam dunk. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's utilizing what we have in abundance and using it, using technology that currently exists, using the mapping technology, the fact that we have satellites, the fact that we can know precisely where this stuff is, where it's blooming. I do find it very interesting, though, thinking, you know, just visioning about how this might work. And, you know, typically when the way we we in the United States, in America, the way we manufacture energy is just a very centralized system. Uh, and even our fisheries, uh, Brad, I, I think you'd acknowledge, you know, you have like a big salmon fishery or a big halibut fishery or a crab fishery. And it's like a specialized thing with specialized equipment. And the notion that this that these mats cover a really an incredible amount of space, Peter, all the way here on the Texas coast, uh, we can be inundated all throughout the Caribbean can be inundated. When I was cruising in the Caribbean a uh, year and a half ago, uh, I saw with my own eyes, uh, not any big mats, but certainly little fragment, uh, fragments of mats, I guess you'd say, floating around out there. Um, so I, it would be interesting to see how you could develop an actual functioning fishery where you where the fisher where the the people who are going out and harvesting this uh have the an an economic system where it works where they can they know that they'll be able to pay the bills and uh a, a facility on land that can process it and uh they're doing this i assume in the same vessel you know this is not a year-round operation uh for these people this would be when it comes in so that's kind of a challenging and unique thing. Brad, I'm curious if there's any other fishery that functions like that. I'm thinking of maybe the crabbing fishery up in Alaska where there's like the opelio season and then there's the king crab season. And during different seasons, you go for different things and maybe there could be a sargasm season. But I'd love to get your, if there's anything that you could compare to that. Sure. Well, many fisheries are highly seasonal and even very compressed in their season. You know, you can have a, a season that's only days long. Um, and it, it, that's done because there are many participants and you don't want to take too much. You know, you just, you just tighten the season. And in the case of Sargassum, it, it looks as if, uh, practically speaking, you either want to have vessels that can do some processing on board uh, because you want to dry it out and not haul around a lot of wet, heavy stuff, uh, for example. Uh, and you, while you're at it, you might want to do value adding. So you could do it that way. You could do it with mobile processing barges or something of that nature that functions like a mothership to a, a fleet of small harvesting vessels. Uh, so you employ smaller vessels that are already present and you move the processing resource to where they are, where in, which is where the resource is and where it's harvestable that year. Uh, it, that's probably not always the same. Uh, having a land-based facility might turn out to be troublesome when you've got a resource that kind of shifts around with the weather and the and the you know the season. Um, this is done though. 
uh, there's a long history of mobile uh, processing and uh, tendering services working with fleets. It's not, uh, it wouldn't be the first time. Uh, it would simply be adapting that model. Uh, I think there are many questions about harvesting methods still to be worked out I, along the lines of what Allison was suggesting. We're going to need to take that farther uh, so that we are, you know, living up to our both legal and ethical obligations to protect what needs protecting, uh, you know, conserve and, and wisely use what can be wisely used. Uh, and that's, you know, th there's work to do on the, on the research side here. Hmm. Uh, some of that's about gear development. Um, some of it's about developing practical systems, a few of which now exist. Uh, they've been developed and tested in Mexico, for example, partly with MIT engineers contributing, um, uh, used by the Mexican Navy. Um, but those, it, it, I think it's telling that the work going on uh, in the field is not in the United States right now, because the United States has what is now um, a policy that's focused on what used to be in the water. Uh, and we now have something different in the water. Well, hopefully they catch up to the real world here, which is that there's been an extraordinary uh, change in the nature of this environmental productive system. Um, I don't have any. There are ve there are very few certainties on the American shoreline, Tyler. I would say there's so many variables in nope. everything. But I'll tell you one that I'm damn sure is true. If there is money to be made in collecting something of value in the water or along the shoreline, and there's clearly an economic incentive, we are capable of collecting it all. And I'll tell you that, I mean, you look at the history of fisheries, Brad, the sardine fishery off of California, uh, uh, the history of the of capacity of human beings to capture and exploit to, for economic advantage things that will make them money. I guarantee you all of the shrimp boat captains or boat people will design the boat, figure it out, figure out where to get it, get the right satellite data, figure out what the mothership needs to be, how to move it around. So the question is really from my standpoint, Allison, is – is there an economically sound product that can be produced from this material? And if there is, if you turn the free market loose on this stuff, we will, you know, we killed 60 million buffalo as we came across the North American continent with a bunch of flintlock rifles and 50 caliber bullets that took thousands of tons of lead shot but we killed every we killed 60 million of those damn things we can catch we can get all of this stuff out of the water if there's an economic incentive is there an economic incentive to use to use this stuff i think there is um you know as i said we're working with the department of energy and they set a, a production cost of 80 dollars per dry metric ton um that's a little bit technical, but 85% uh, of the biomass is water. So that's why it's, it's in dry. The point is, if you can reach that production cost and you're not using a lot of fuel to uh, get to your harvest site, then we can meet the, um, the targets for DOE. Uh, and that's for energy, which is not a high value product but there are others. And the, the goal really is to solve a problem and hit an economic value. And that's, you know, that's very exciting to be able to provide an ecosystem service in the coastal zone and be able to have a new kind of fishery. Um, you know, the last thing I would say on that is every fishery should be at a sustainable level. So we certainly don't want to over harvest. Um, we want to be careful about that. But I think there's a way to harvest and leave some percentage of the material out in the water. And I, I think that's important if you're further off from shore. There's a way to, you know, we know a growth rate. Um, 
there, there are ways to do this that uh, need to be better defined and make an economic use of the biomass. So it's, you know, it's an exciting area uh, to be able to solve a problem and also to provide new kinds of jobs working with climate goals. And it's an area where I, I want to see America lead because, uh, as Peter, you mentioned, uh, maybe some of the, the sad stories of exploitation, we have also uh, managed our, resor- our renewable resources very well. Uh, over the past hundred years, particularly fisheries in America, the, in in a very innovative public policy way, and I see this as just being very analogous to the way that we manage forests and the way that we manage fisheries, and uh, a sustainable harvest is possible, and I really think that the notion here is when Mother Earth gives you something like additional sarcasm how can we incorporate rather than ignoring it just ignoring oh there's this big thing we're just going to ignore that how can we take that resource and using our modern sensibilities of sustainability and uh, abiding by the planet how can we take that and maximize our utility with it and uh, our way that's this is the process that we have to do across the the broad spectrum of our lives but this is a really cool kind of tip of the spear example of how the future might look. I, I agree. And, and one of the interesting aspects about about this uh, potential market is, uh, hell, those, those hotel operators in Playa del Carmen would pay you if you could keep that stuff off their beach. Uh, not only would the product be valuable and have a market value, but the avoidance of the of the problem on the shoreline is going to be valuable uh, but what a cool uh what a, what a great issue and brad we want to thank you for bringing this topic to our attention and introducing us to allison myers the president of the fearlessfund.org uh check this out this is a really cutting edge issue in uh, ocean management and resource management and a problem that needs innovative thinkers like Allison. Uh, Allison, it's just a pleasure to speak with you about what you're working on. Uh, final thoughts from you? Well, thank you very much for, for hosting this today. I think that you're correct that this is the you know spear tip, or as you called it. Um, we have to engage in this thinking. We, we have a changing world and changing ecosystems and it's happening very fast. So we need to be innovative and solutions focused and find ways to solve these problems and um, save ourselves and save the planet. I mean, I hate to be dire about that. I think it's actually, you know, innovation is very exciting. I think the US has a history and a culture of innovation. And uh, I think that, you know, Brad and I have discussed this. We want the U.S. to lead and to to be a solutions provider. So it's an exciting area. And uh, thank you for the uh, opportunity today. We love your work. Um, you know, our coasts are so important and there's so many challenges. So um, I guess we all better go and get working on them. Thank you so much, Allison. Brad, I'll give you the final word on this show. Thank you very much for, again for, for introducing us to this topic. Well, thank you kindly. I'm uh, thrilled to be able to bring Allison uh, into this discussion. And I think she has a point. What's going on here at ASPN is this kind of beautiful silo busting discussion about what it's going to take to manage a profound change in the way our coasts and oceans work. Uh, and it affects everyone, even those who live far from the coast. This is one of those moments when uh, we are going to need to learn in many, many ways, much like we're having to learn in Sargassum, how to roll with change and make the most of it, how to uh, create new solutions and find the opportunities in the middle of that change. Allison's work is a perfect model of that. Man, really, really well said, Brad. I think that's exactly the challenge ahead and the kind of innovative thinking we need. 
Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it is Brad Warren, the president of the National Fisheries Conservation Center and also the host of the Changing Waters podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And Allison Myers, the president of fearlessfun.org. I encourage you to check this out. This is really uh, some of the most innovative problem solving uh, thinking going on on a difficult, difficult issue for so much of the Caribbean Basin community. Uh, Allison, thank you so much, Brad. Thank you for sharing your insights with our audience on the American Shoreline Podcast.